All right, let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather once again to hear from you. And Lord, that's my prayer, that we hear from you as you put these words on Paul's mind and in his heart to jot down to this church so that now we get to read them and we get to study them. Father, I pray that they speak directly to our lives. May they meet us where we are. Thank you for the power that is within your word. Change our lives. So Father, let us hear from you this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, well today is the last Sunday in the, the book uh, of Philippians that we are studying. Uh, but I'm telling you that right now, uh, but I really want you to pay attention to this. The next three weeks, you don't want to miss, because I'm not going to be here, <laughs> right? You're going to get some guest speakers who are going to be coming in, and it's going to be fabulous. Uh, next week, Matt Pittenger is coming in, and uh, he's been here before. He's a young man from uh, the Huntsville Christian Church, and, and he's going to share his story. And, and you need to hear his story. It, 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 his story is, is encouraging, and, and, and to see what God has done in this young man's life to where he is right now, at the ripe old age of like 28 years old is really impressive. And so that's next week. And then uh, Efren Ariaga, who uh, is the son to Ed, Eduardo Ariaga, uh, who we support. He's a minister at the Hispanic church that, that is an extension of this church. It, it's, it's part of, is one of our partners in the Huntsville area. He's going to be here the following week. And um, Lord willing, he's going to talk about this this verse in Ecclesiastes where the, the cord of three strands, the need to be living life together with one another. We're not meant to live alone. We're not meant to do things by ourselves. We're meant to have other people in our lives. And then the, the third week, uh, we're going to have Perry Rubin's going to come up from Auburn and he's going to talk about our partnership there. He's going he's to talk about the impact that what we do is doing some mighty work in Auburn. Now, we're not doing the work. We're just sending the, the, the funds that we're praying for. Next year, however, we're going. We're going to go down to Auburn and we're going to do some work, and it's going to be a mission trip. And some of you, okay, you're going to experience God because, you know, y'all wear that other crimson color and stuff, and you're not, you're not aware of God, okay? So when you go down to Auburn, you're going to be like, oh, this is the glimpse of heaven that I was that I've heard about. There's that. All right. So, yes, that's that's coming. That's that's the next that's the next three weeks. So you don't want to miss those. Um, Sykes's are on on vacation uh, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week we're taking a, just a family trip. Uh, the key word there is family and trip, meaning we're going somewhere. Stella doesn't know yet. And, and, and we're just keeping it all kind of in-house, uh, but we're going away, and uh, we're going we're gonna to visit some family, and we're going to do some other stuff. We're going to have a great time next week. Uh, that's, that's our trip, and then we'll be home a week, uh, on vacation, be around, be available, certainly, but then the week after that, Amanda and I are taking vacation, and uh, there's a difference between vacation and trip when you when you're, have parents, when, you're, when you have kids at home, right? Trips are very, you know, or you do the thing. You do the family stuff. It's very organized. It's very Presbyterian, if you will. 
You know, everybody's there, there, and we just do our stuff, and we go through the motions, and we had stuff. <laughs> we go on vacation, though. It's a little more charismatic. Catch the group, right? There ain't no kids. There's, you know, hallelujahs and speaking in tongues, that kind of stuff. And so that's vacation. Amanda's like, please don't say that. <laughs> I've already told her this. She's like, don't say that in church. But there it is. All right. After that, come back in, in November. I'm excited about this. We're going to be finishing out the year on the life of David. And we're going to look at it. The shepherd. You know, the kid who his own dad forgot about him. When, when it was like, hey, go down there to Bethlehem and, and get, you know, get one of uh, Jesse's boys. He's going to be the next king. And Jesse's like, oh, oh, yeah, I got one. Yeah, he's still out there. You want that one? Like the baby, the runt, the little one? The... Yeah, we're going to talk about that kid from there all the way to king and all things that happened in between. And today, I'm hoping that we learn a major secret that Paul knows that will propel our lives to a place of knowing the peace of God. We talked about this a lot last week, this peace of God, this peace that transcends all understanding, and, and it's this continuation today, and Paul's like, I know the secret to this. And so last week we talked about two of the most downloaded Bible verses uh, that are out there on the internet today, and today we're going to talk about one of the misused Bible verses that's out there, and they all happen within about six different verses. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians, the fourth chapter. We're going to read 10 through 20 and then talk about this. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who give me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me in more than once when I was in need. Now, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an, offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is wrapping up what we said week one, this thank you letter to this group of people who have supported him in the kingdom work that is being done. That's what this letter is. It's a thank you letter. And the Philippians sent Paul gifts while he was in a Roman prison to meet his needs. 
and to advance the message of Jesus Christ further into the world. It, it was money that was not going to be spent on or in their own communities. It was an investment in the kingdom, and Paul's acknowledging it here. I received your gifts. Thank you. That's what he says in verse 8. I have received full payment. And I have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I've received the gifts from Epaphroditus, the gifts that you sent, they're a fragrant offering to me. Oh, I mean, when was the last time you received something and you were so grateful for it in the description? You're like, man, this, 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 this is like this fragrant offering that is truly a blessing. It's enjoyable and it's pleasing to God that you gave to me and my God will meet all your needs because that's what happens when we give to others. When, when we support the kingdom and when we buy into the kingdom, he will meet our needs. And so he's thanking them. We talked about this week one and it needs to be said again. Unspoken gratitude, church, is a waste. And if you're grateful for something, you need to express it. You need to let it be known. And if you're grateful for something that has been done for you or to you or it's been shared with you, let the people, let the person, let the group know about it. And if you're not grateful for something that's been done or shared with you, well, that's another conversation for another day, right? But Paul says, I've received the gift. He's grateful. He lets them know. But then Paul is also teaching some very important life lessons centered on being a follower of Jesus characteristic of Jesus. And here's the thing, and, 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 and some of you older, wiser, more experienced people in the room, you, you're probably going to be like, oh yeah, amen, amen. But 21st century Americans need to hear and need to learn this lesson like no other generation before. Verse 11, he tells us what it is. I I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And that's the lesson that we need to not just hear about, but we need to learn. How are we to be content no matter whatever the circumstances are? And that's the lesson. He goes, I know the secret to this. Because I'm going to share the secret with you. Before we get there, let's talk about this thing. What are his circumstances? Well, we know he's in Roman prison. We know that's where he is when he's writing this. And to get to the place where he was writing this letter took at least three months of traveling from Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, he'd been arrested. He was in chains. He was a prisoner on his way to Rome. So during this three months traveling, all right, he's not flying first class. Okay? We, we're flying in a couple weeks. We call it Paul Man's first class. We, we get like the little exit road, right? Like we've gotten to that stage in our life where, by golly, we're upgrading to the exit road because that's as bougie as we can afford to be. All right? Paul's like, uh -uh, I'm not getting there. I'm not even there. Like, like, like I'm in the cargo hold. That's where I am. I'm, I'm down there with the cargo. I'm down there with the chickens. Y'all seen the pictures of the buses where everybody, the buses are just packed and they're holding the animals. The goats are, 
you know, run up and down the aisle, they're holding crates of animals and all kinds of stuff. That's what Paul's traveling in. And he's traveling by sea. And we know that he's shipwrecked. All the cargo is gone. All the possessions have, have sunk. He washes up on shore and, and, and there's some survivors there and they, they make it to shore. And Paul's like, I'm going to build a fire so that we can dry out. And he gets bit by a snake. And, and, and the people of Malta are like, man, you're like so cursed that not only are you a prisoner and not only are you going to Rome where that's bad news for you, you're going to die, and not only are you shipwrecked, but you just got bit by a snake. It, it doesn't get any worse for you. You have the ultimate curse life that you're living. And so he's a prisoner. He's been arrested, of course. He's shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake. He was beaten along the way. And now he sits in a Roman house jail and he is chained to a guard. Like not even a person he likes. Okay, like, like we would dread being chained to somebody we like. He's chained to a guard. Those are the circumstances that he is content in. For I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. Here's the thing. I've never caught this before about contentment, but contentment is something that has to be learned, and Paul has learned it. Like, it's not just a, oh, let me just pray about this, and then and God sprinkles some, some pixie dust on us, and all of a sudden I become content. That, that's not how it works. We have to learn how to be content because we're not naturally content people. Right? I mean, we come out the womb not being content. When you think about a baby, okay, they are only content throughout the day if their circumstances are ideal. All right, they got a clean diaper. Tony Dyer, now we talked about this in my Tuesday Night Life group, just how little I knew about children, okay, especially babies. All right, and I've shared this with you before. This is, this is no secret. I was literally surprised when Griffin had his eyes open just like minutes after, minutes after he was born. I was like, his eyes are already open. I've got a prodigy here. This is awesome. And everybody's looking around like, are you serious? Are you that dense? You pretty much, I was that dense. Brought Griffin home, right? And, and the church at the time, they had a, a, a chicken stew. You know, used to do that kind of stuff. And had this chicken stew over there. And like, by their definition of chicken stew, is like they would drag some chicken through some broth, right? And, 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 and then they would serve it to people and, there wasn't any chicken in their chicken stew. It's just like chicken flavoring in their stew. We got home from the hospital, and I just walked Griffin out. I just unplugged him from the little parsley thing and just started walking over there. And I'm like, I'm getting ready to show this baby boy off. And he's like, uh, what you doing? I'm like, there's people. He's like, yeah, we're going to show them. And this is what's going to happen. He said, no, get back here. And so Tony Dyer, later on that day, he said, look, Michael, you need some help, parent. Let me fill you in on a couple things. 95% of that little boy's problems can be solved by two things. A clean diaper and food. Because the other 5%, percent you got to figure out on your own. Okay, I can't help you there. But I'm going to solve 95% of that child's issues. When he's crying, do those two things first. And then, if he's still crying, find his mom. Okay, because it's outside of, of, of your ability as, as a parent, right? And so you guys know this, right? So babies are great. 
if the if the circumstances are like ideal, if, I, if my if my diaper's clean, if my belly is full, if I've got you know one of the twelve pacifiers laying around the house that I have access to right here, things are good. If any of those go astray, they let you know. If, if any of those things get off, man, they're going to cry and they're going to let you know, and they're going to do this until they are satisfied. And you're going to take the little satisfier thing and shove it in their mouth. Hope that'll get them to quit crying, and you're going to get the food ready, you're going to get the diaper cleaned, and then boom, their circumstances are all right for a moment, and they're content. Yes. And you people act the same way. Adults do this all the time. We don't like something, so we cry about it. Now, we may not cry about it to everybody, but we cry about it. You know, even if it's just like I'm going to tell myself, and I'm just going to voice this out loud. We cry about it, and then we think, again, because it's ingrained within us since birth, that if I change the situation, then that's going to make me happy. That's what we think. Drive an old car, for example. Just getting along, this car gets me from point A to point B. It, you know, it works. But then you ride in Susie's car. Susie's car is nicer. And it's newer than your car. Susie's car does not rattle. <laughs> Susie's car, and she got even seats in her car. You believe that? And that Apple Play thing, that display, like guys, there's cars right now that have like 44-inch touchscreen displays in them right now. It's um, it's bigger than my TV at home. Right, like the cars. There's cars that have a bigger display of TV than, or than my TV at home, and you just walk in right there, and Susie gets in there, and boom, her Apple Play is just right there. It's all, it's all right here. Her phone just syncs up. You know what? I mean, you got to plug your phone into a cord. You believe that? And we sit here and we tell ourselves, man, I drive this junk. If I just had Susie's car, man, I, life would just be better. I, you know, I'd be more efficient. I could I get point A to point B. When I got there, I wouldn't be stressed out because, you know, is the parking brake going to actually hold in my car or whatever the case may be? And so you go buy a car because, you know what? You can afford the payments. Okay? You can't afford the car, but you can afford the payments. That's the difference. You're like, oh, man, this is nice. This, this is a lot better. This is what I need. I told y'all, man, this is, this is what I need. But then you're riding Sarah's car. Man, Sarah's car does all that, and it has air-conditioned seats. Sarah's car will literally blow cold air up your backside, right? In the summer, when it's 90 degrees, and that whole pleather stuff you got is just hot, hot okay? And, and, and now, man, not just heated seats in the winter, but you got a heated steering wheel. I remember driving Amanda's dad's truck the first time. Like, we're driving somewhere, and, and I'm like, the steering wheel's getting hot. Like, I think, like, seriously, this was a conversation. We're driving down the road. I didn't even know they made heated steering wheels, right? We're driving down the road, and I tell it, Randy, the steering wheel is getting hot. There might be something wrong with it that we need to get checked out. And he's just like, oh, you poor, poor young man. He goes, let me take care of that. And he turns the button off. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Heated steering wheels? And if I just had that. Life would be better. I'll tell you about my sister. She's got a Tesla. Right? Like, I drive. 
until a month ago, I, at the time, an 05 Nissan Titan that, there's another story, um, that in 08, in 2008, a year and a half after I had it, it had less than 150,000 miles on it. The actuator door that controls the heat um, doesn't work. It, it, and so in the winter time, when you have the heat on, this is what you get. And sometimes it did that for like 15 seconds, and sometimes it would do it for like three minutes. So I went to get that fixed, and the dealership told me, yeah, that's going to be about $1,800. That was in 2008. You had to remove the dash, you had to remove the heater. And I'm like, so that's, I've, I've dealt with that. Like, like this entire, like this, this, this entire time. And so my sister has a Tesla. I get in it, and you can't hear anything. Like I'm like, something wrong with your car. It doesn't make any noise whatsoever. And you get out of it, and you're just like, oh, that's a game changer in life. And we do it all the time. It may not be cars. You know, it may be guns. Okay, it, it, it may be deer stands. It, it, it may be, you know, sewing machines. It may be what, whatever the thing is. We do this as Americans all the time, that this thing would make my life better. And for most of us, we're even willing to go into debt over it. Paul's cluing us in here. A contentment is a learned state of mind. The Greek understanding here is satisfied no matter my situation. Right? Like, no matter what my situation is. And he says in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I want you to notice something here. That, that Paul is talking about, when he's talking about contentment, he, he's not talking about his wants. He's not talking about his wish list and his desires. He's, he's not talking about, you know, upgrading, you know, from one place in the boat to another place in the boat because, man, that would just make my life a little bit better. He is talking about just basic needs of life. There are four basic needs in our society. Mike mentioned three of them in his meditation. Four basic needs in our society. Shelter, clothing, food and water, and then transportation. I'm talking about for our society. Those are the four basic needs. And Paul's over here and he's pointing out, hey, I've, I've been over here where those needs are lacking, where those needs are not there and I have been content. And I sit here and I read through this list the four basic needs, and Dave Ramsey talks about this, and, 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 and other ministries that, that deal with giving and, and money management. They come back to these are the four basic needs. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about this. Do you personally, do you personally know anyone who does not have these four basic needs met? I mean, I know that there's homeless people in our city. Okay, I, I, I get that. But do you personally know somebody that does not have these needs being met? And Paul tells us right here, I have gone without these things for periods of time in my life, and I was satisfied with my situation. Paul's like, man, we had a shipwreck, and I was hanging on to some of the wreckage out there in the Mediterranean Sea, and I was satisfied 
with my situation. We aren't satisfied in this room if it gets too hot or too cold. Some of y'all are like, it's too cold. <laughs> I see you. And here's the thing, church, prosperity and comfort have done more damage to the American believers than has the adversity that we've had to face. It's dangerous. So, as we talk about contentment, what kills contentment? What is it that is in our lives, woven within the day-to-day -day things that we do, that kills contentment? And so I want to share this with you quickly. It's not an exhaustive list, and it's certainly not in any particular order. But here's what I want you to do at the end of this, is I want you to filter your actions and filter your, your words through this list. Are you doing any of these things? Are you doing all of these things? Are you a content person or not? Do these things have something to do with it? And so the first thing is comparison. Comparison kills contentment. I'm going to keep up with the Joneses. That, that, that's an American thought process there. And here's the thing about comparison, and I'm going to keep this short for you. We never compare down the ladder of prosperity. I never look to people and, and, and look down the ladder and say, oh man, they have, they have so much less than me. I'm just so grateful. I'm good. We don't do that. I, I never compare my pastoral resources and salary to Isaac. The minister at the Church of Christ in Mishoko. I don't, I don't ever compare my, my situation to his situation. I mean, he only makes $50 a week. And that's on good weeks. We, don't, we never compare our situation to those less fortunate than us. We always compare to those who have more. We compare to those who have nicer. Comparison will kill contentment. Comparison and a lack of contentment keeps you from being happy for other people when they have what you don't have. So comparison kills contentment. Are you one that likes to compare your situation to the situation of others? Complaining, that's another one. We kill contentment. Complaining will kill contentment and drive those around you crazy, okay? It, it, it happens really quick when we start complaining. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We are to do everything, to do all things without complaining or arguing. Right? You, you, you remember this, that, that complaining is going against what Paul wrote to the Romans. And we know that in all things, God works for those of the, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'm sitting here and I'm complaining about the situation and what I'm really doing is saying, God, I don't like how you're working things out currently and I'm going to voice my opinion. Grumbling or complaining is discontentment made audible. That's what that is. Are you a complainer? Don't, don't answer that for yourself. Let other people speak into your life. Let other people say, yeah, you're a little bit of a, a whiny hiney. You complain a lot. Sorry, I just wanted my third grade teacher there. That <laughs> just came out. That's not written in this text, I promise. Anyway, <laughs> I said that. Third thing, entitlement. 
Oh, and this, I mean, you right? Y'all been around the people who who are feel entitled. Everybody younger than me. That's basically it. I mean, it, it's it's the next that next generation. They feel entitled. I deserve this. I deserve. I deserve. That's how they walk through life. Entitlement is the belief that we inherently deserve privileges or special treatments or that we have the right to something. And entitlement will kill contentment. And here's the truth of the matter. There's only one thing that any of us deserves. One thing. That's it. That's it. That's all that any of us deserves. And that's eternal punishment because of sin in my life. That's the only thing I deserve. But God said, I'm going to make a way where there is no way. God said, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to send my son so that you don't get what you deserve. Because here's the thing, the entitlement church is all about self-serving actions. It's one of the markers for, for someone who is a narcissist if you know who those people. And entitlement, here's the thing, is also linked to people who suffer with depression. You, 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 you can find somebody that's dealing with depression over here and you're going to see a sense of entitlement somewhere in the picture. So entitlement is another thing that will kill contentment. Another one is unrealistic expectations, right? I mean, we walk through life with unrealistic expectations all the time. Man has been dealing with this for 30 years, right? I mean, her dad can build things. I mean, he could take this, you know, podium apart right here and make it into a car, right? Like, I mean, he can fix things. He, he's a great cook, right? I mean, he's a problem solver. He just, he's, he's one of these guys that, man, he can do it all, and then, there's me, right? Like, I cause the things that need to be built or fixed and all that kind of stuff. And she's like, golly, you kind of reminded me of my dad, but you fooled me. And so she went into our marriage with unrealistic expectations. I keep telling her, low the expectations, you'll never be disappointed, right? But, but outside of that joke right there, we think that whatever it is, that new job, <coughs> that new spouse, that new car, that, that new sound system, let me tell you, I, I am so sick of these little sticker things on the wall peeling off out there, and I'm so sick of the stain in the carpets that, that I'm, I'm about to talk us into doing another capital campaign just to get rid of carpet and, and new paint. I'm telling you right now. And, and, and you want to know why? Because I think it'll make my life better. Right? Like, like, like that's what we do. We have these unrealistic expectations that if I just had the bigger iPad Pro, I'd be better. I really think I'd be a better communicator if you want to know the truth. So. Just kidding. The next thing we do is we focus on the temporary. We learned back in chapter 3 that our citizenship, this isn't even home. This is like a long stay over. That's all this is. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's home. And when our focus is on living for retirement, and when our focus is on, on living for that, that perfect spouse or that perfect career, when our focus is on the things of this earth, we kill contentment. Because we're focused on the temporary. 
we're focused on the things of this earth. And you can go down the list. Man, you can add instant gratification kills contentment, or greed kills contentment. You, you can talk about not living in peace with God. I mean, you, you, could, you can keep running down the list of things that kill contentment, but you get the idea. It, it's ingrained in our culture and our society for you to not be content. And so Paul gives us the secret for learning how to be content in every situation. Here's, here's the secret. It's verse 13. I can do all things. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. This is the most misused Bible verse in all of Scripture. Is there truth there? Can, can you do anything if God gives you the strength or the ability, or the ability to do so? Absolutely. And you can. Okay. But we misuse it all the time because here's the deal. You know, God's not going to give you superpowers every single time you think you need it. Right? I, I, I was thinking about two stories in my life. I really don't know which is more embarrassing where I've, I've done this. One involves trying to get a girl to date me. So I'm not going to tell you that one. Um, but there was a time not too long ago, a couple, several years ago, where I wanted to get back to high school shape. Right? So I'm in the gym, I'm going at it. Ten years ago, I wanted to be able to get the numbers that I could do in, in high school. And so I, I seriously had this thought where, man, if I can just put 350 pounds on this squat bar, and I'm, and I'm just going, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to do it. I, I, I can do all of this for Christ who gives me strength. Like, that was my mentality. Hadn't worked out. I have been leading up to that. I'm just like, God's going to give me the strength to do this because I'm created in His image. And so I load the weight up there. I get the big leather belt on. I get it cinched down tight. You know what I mean? This is well, probably 15, 20 years after I've done this. I walk up there, and I get the squat bar on my shoulders, and I start to get right here, and I'm thinking, oh, this ain't about to happen. <laughs> and I just lean forward and let the bar roll back off. Don't work that way, church. God's like, man, you're going to do that. You're just like a moron. I know God wouldn't call me a moron, but you deserve to be buckled over like that. We use this verse to get God to empower our plans. <laughs> and it, it, that's not how it works. Paul is talking about contentment, which is a characteristic of Jesus. And you and I are to become like Jesus. That is part of God's plan, not my plan. And so in this situation, Paul is up here and he's like, I know the secret to contentment. It is through the power of Jesus Christ in my life that I can be content in any and every situation. Bob Russell says this, the secret is not only is not a big mystery and not at all difficult to figure out. There you go. Contentment, he says, is the result of striving to please Christ rather than trying to impress people. That's another one that'll kill contentment. It comes, he says, from focusing on eternal rewards rather than earthly riches, refusing to get caught up in the rat race to finish first and instead living to please God alone. Church, I ask you, 
When you wake up this morning, are you living to please God alone? That's why, that's why Paul wrote, we read this a couple weeks ago, it's not coming up on the screen, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord, is that enough? And I'm not talking about, well, I'm sitting over here in a nice, comfortable place. I've got all my needs met. I've got most of my wants met. So yes, it is. But if you're shipwrecked, if you've lost it all, is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ your Lord, is that enough for you? Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. <clears throat> I mean, it's just an improvement to your life. And that new iPad's not going to be the improvement to your life. That new luxury item, that new whatever the thing is, is not going to be the improvement, it's not going to be great gain to your life. <coughs> contentment coupled with godliness is, he goes, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we should be content with all that. He goes on to talk about riches. Those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and the trap, and in, 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 in they're trapped into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He doesn't say getting rich, but longing to be rich. Chasing those desires will, will take you into, will plunge you into ruin and destruction. <clears throat> For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. <clears throat> Some people eager for money, for things, have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, when you're in the pursuit of this stuff, and look here, some of you, man, some of you just are tremendous money managers, some of you are tremendous savers, some of you are tremendous investors and you make money, praise the Lord. But when you think that that's going to be the end-all, be-all, and you're pursuing this kind of stuff, it's going to lead to many griefs in your life. So Paul is warning Timothy, man, if you could just figure out contentment, if you could just learn this state of mind, this characteristic of Jesus, if you could just learn this right now, it will lead to great gains in your life. If we come back to Philippians, it will lead to peace. I don't know if you've heard the story of Horatio and Anna Spafford. You're familiar with them. You just don't know how you're familiar with them. Horatio and Anna were married, I think, in the 1860s. Horatio was an attorney and a real estate investor. Had a lot of stuff going on for him in Chicago. He was a devout leader in his church. He was a big supporter of 
uh, D.L. Moody. In 1871, Horatio and Anna suffered some, some tragedy as the fires, the massive fires of Chicago swept through and it destroyed the city and devastated uh, the lives of thousands of people. It, it, it wiped out several of Horatio's uh, real estate investments and his properties were just completely destroyed. 300 people that day, they said, lost their lives. There were 100,000 were made homeless. The article I read says, despite their own substantial financial loss, the Spafford sought to demonstrate the love of Christ by assisting those who were grief-stricken and in great need. That they helped rebuild the homes of, of widows and they took care of orphans long before they took care of their own immediate needs, rebuilding their structures. Two years later, in 1873, the Spafford family said that they wanted to go to Europe. They wanted to go to England, and they wanted to, to travel with their friend, D.L. Moody, as he was going to be going on this circuit uh, to do this series of revivals. So they, they get ready to board a ship in 1873. It was in the fall. And as they get to the, the dock were there to board Horatio, something happens and he's not allowed to go. He has to stay behind and take care of business. And, and so his wife and four daughters get on this boat. And between the fires and, and this point in time, they, they lost a son to scarlet fever. And so the five of them set sail. Ratio goes back to Chicago. He takes care of the stuff that he has to take care of. And on the 22nd of November, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship that they are on gets struck by another iron sailing ship out of the British fleet. 226 people lost their lives as the Villa de Gouverre sank within 12 minutes. Somehow, Anna and a few others in their party survived. While holding on to driftwood from the wreck, one of the other pastors there heard Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. One day, I'll understand why. Can you imagine? Float in the Atlantic. The chaos of the ship sinking. Not knowing what's going on have that mentality. So Anna and the rest of their party was rescued and when they finally got to shore they sent the telegram and this is what Horatio received. Saved alone. What shall I do? So Horatio boarded the next possible ship while journeying on their way. The captain woke him up one night and said I want you to come up here to the deck. Based on the coordinates, based on the things that we've learned, we believe that this is the spot where your family lost their lives. It says that he stood there on the moment, in the moment, embraced it, cried, and he went down to his stateroom and he penned these words. On peace like a river attendeth my way. 
when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Can you imagine? I mean, Michael would have a lawsuit against whatever other shipping company that was. A couple years later, the Spaffords have another son born three years after the tragedy. He also died at the age of four. So the next year, Horatio and Anna they decided that they would just leave America. They would travel to Jerusalem. There they would serve the needy. They helped the poor, they cared for the sick. They took in homeless children. Their desire was to show those living the love of Jesus. Whatever my want, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Father, we come before you right now. We just ask that you give us the strength to be satisfied in all, in any situations. Father, I pray over our church that you will help us to learn how to be content. As we couple that with the godliness and Christ-like living, may we experience the great gain that comes with knowing the peace of God that transcends all understanding.